is Asia Insight, Asia Policy in a Pod. Hello, and welcome everyone to this episode of Asia Insight, a podcast by the National Bureau of Asian Research. My name is Rachel Bernstein, Assistant Director for Political and Security Affairs at NBR. In this episode, we'll be discussing the significance of the African continent and China's grand strategy under Xi Jinping, something that NBR has been examining in depth for the past couple of years as part of a major research project made possible through the generous support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York. The collection of reports and publications from this project are freely accessible on NBR's website, www.nbr.org, under the program tab, Into Africa, China's Emerging Strategy. MBR began looking into this topic following a research project that investigated China's vision for a new world order and examined how the Chinese political and intellectual elite were thinking about Beijing's role in this so-called new world order. We found that China is seeking a partial and malleable hegemony that is loosely exercised over the global South. This finding begs the question of the strategic thinking and discussions behind China's engagement with the global South, given its importance in China's preferred world order. And owing to Beijing's historical engagement with the African continent, we chose to focus particularly on Beijing's Africa strategy. In 2020, MBR distinguished fellow Nadej Rouan began a multi-year initiative to look at when and why the African continent became strategically important for Beijing, the PRC's objectives in pursuing an Africa strategy, and the tools Beijing utilizes to achieve its goals. The project findings draw largely from a series of reports, articles, and documents from a four-year research project funded by the National Planning Office of Philosophy and Social Sciences, tasked in 2015 with studying, quote, China's international strategy applied to Africa relations, end quote, and to determine the kind of Africa strategy China needs and how it should be implemented. The work created as part of this project is not just academic articles by high-profile and well-respected academics, but was authorized and funded by the upper echelon of the Chinese party state. So let's first turn to Nadej Rouan to get a better sense of how China's strategy towards the African continent evolved. Overall, the, the global south in general and, and, and the African continent in particular historically have had a, a very big role to play um, and have been important for China's foreign policy um, since really since the since the foundation of the People's Republic. Um, but this attention given to Africa has has had ebbs and flows uh, historically. During the, the reforming era period, um, the continent was mostly seen as a source of a potential source of uh, mineral and um, energy um, and like natural resources to help with the, the economic development of the Chinese economy. And there was also a diplomatic component um, specifically to try to asphyxiate the diplomatic space of Taiwan in particular. I think that the beginning of a reformulation of China's global strategy starts in the period around 2008 um, after the global financial crisis. This is a really important moment for Beijing 
because it sent the signal that the the West or the liberal uh, democratic model was starting to show signs of decline. And at the same time, you know, this is a period 2010 when China overtakes Japan as the second world economy. So there's a there's a moment there when Beijing feels that it has the the win on its back uh, in terms of material power. And the the strategic thinkers start to really get into, okay, so what are we going to do with all this power? What does this mean for us in terms of China's role uh, in the region or maybe uh, further um, away from our, let's say, traditional um, environment, periphery? Uh, so there's a lot of discussions that start around that time. And um, this is also, so this is this is for the positive, you know, upward trajectory, but it's also backed with a series of external events that um, are going to create a lot of anxiety uh, in Beijing because, um, you know, this is uh, 2011, um, it's the time of the Arab Spring movement in the Middle East, in North Africa. Um, which Beijing sees as a series of color revolutions that have been fomented by, by Washington. And um, the Obama administration uh, launches its uh, pivot or rebalancing to Asia strategy. And this was seen from China's side as, a, as the beginning of, a, of an increased um, rivalry or competition um, that the U.S. will be waging against China. So a lot of optimism and some anxiety also about um, the beginning of, 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 of frictions um, with the U.S. And this is a, again, this is a really interesting moment in time um, in terms of discussions about China's role in the world, China's role as a great power, how they envision themselves on the global stage. And some um, scholars and intellectuals um, reflecting on this situation uh, start to think that China needs to expand its own influence and perhaps um, focus on the Eurasian continent, on the continental side of its periphery. And that includes Wang Jisu, who says that basically China should march westward to um, turn its back against the American pressure on its maritime flank. And some of his colleagues, though, think that this is not enough. It's the Eurasian continent is not enough and that uh, the Middle East should be included. Uh, of course, the entire Asia, South Asia region should be included. And then Africa should also be included. And then little by little, it looks like this mental map of China's expansion of its uh, potential interests in the world expands to the entire global South. Um, and Africa is really identified as a, a very important uh, region uh, in which to, to develop this kind of, of influence as well. 
Nadege continues to explain that what became apparent through this research is that an emerging China strategy for the African continent was that the the vision what was much broader, deeper, and much more comprehensive. And that it was not just about establishing commercial or trade um, links and connections or even just a regular diplomatic exchange with African countries, but might lead to the transformation of the African continent on, um, on a scale that was quite impressive in terms of ambitions. Essentially, the strategy can be broken down into this. To better fit into China's strategy and serve Beijing's objectives, African countries would be subjected to a series of economic and political transformations intended to integrate them into the international subsystem that China wishes to create and dominate. Four areas emerge as priorities for China's new Africa strategy, economic development, diplomacy, security, and ideological contest. Today, we are going to delve into each of these four priority areas and hear from project contributors and experts on elements of China's economic, diplomatic, security, and ideological strategy for the continent. On the economic side, Beijing continues to take a keen interest in securing access to raw materials and energy supplies, but is also exploring the wider economic opportunities that Africa may present in the future. Africa's growing urbanized middle class could constitute a potentially massive new source of demand for Chinese firms eager to further expand their overseas markets. In no other sector has China's expanding footprint in Africa been more obvious than in infrastructure building. Over the past two decades, China has financed one in five infrastructure initiatives and built one in three projects. Over half the Chinese funded projects are in the transportation sector, including shipping and ports, followed by energy and power. Since 2013, discussions related to China's expanding role in and impact on global infrastructure building have mostly revolved around the deployment of the Belt and Road Initiative, BRI, the organizing framework of Xi Jinping's foreign policy in the new era. Mandira Bagwandin, a senior researcher and lecturer at the Nelson Mandela School of Public Governance in Cape Town, South Africa, has been observing the changing realities of China's infrastructure development in Africa and tracing the presence and impact of the BRI in African countries. What I've observed, or I guess what also many other China Africa scholars have observed, is that prior to the BRI, you know, China was investing quite steadily in infrastructure in Africa. And closer to the to the launch of the BRI and post the launch of the BRI, we started seeing investments in what some would call mega infrastructure projects, you know, like airports, ports, massive railways. And these were mostly in the transport and energy sectors. And these projects were worth billions of dollars. Initially, however, Africa was not included in the BRI scheme, which focused primarily on the 64 countries of the greater Eurasian continent. The incremental integration of Africa within the Belt and Road strategy started with the December 2015 Johannesburg Summit in response to African countries' eagerness to join the initiative. And as of 2019, it was the single largest source of um, finance for African infrastructure in 
you know, almost matching and sometimes exceeding financing from the World Bank. So China's role um, in financing and building infrastructure um, in Africa has been really important, especially uh, post the launch of the BRI. And at the continental level, you know, China was, was recognized as a crucial development partner um, on infrastructure. I think it was in 2015, um, it signed an MOU with the African Union to cooperate on developing um, major infrastructure networks and industrial infrastructure. And according to a report by the Center for Global Studies at the University of Bonn, Germany, as of April 2022, um, 52 out of 54 African countries had already signed BRI MOUs. So this is a clear indication that this initiative, you know, has been well received by the continent and definitely played a role in, in really, um, you know, bringing a lot of financing and Chinese infrastructure expertise to, to Africa. Clearly. The BRI has been rapidly integrated throughout the continent. But as Nadej Rouan explains, BRI is more than just hard infrastructure initiatives. Very rapidly, you can see that all the other pillars of the Belt and Road have also been implemented in, in these early years. So you can see that various corporations that go well beyond the hard infra infrastructure building part are starting to emerge in uh, other areas, including people to people development, lots of corporations in education, um, media exchanges, um, and uh, academic exchanges as well. Mandira also highlights the synergy between the BRI and African objectives, particularly surrounding Agenda 2063. Is the African Union's strategic framework or blueprint for achieving structural economic transformation and um, sustainable economic growth and development for, for the continent. So it was adopted in 2015 and it's, it's basically like a really long, something like a 50 year long term development plan for, for Africa. And it consists of seven key aspirations with related goals that need to be achieved. As Mandira explains, there are several aspirations within Agenda 2063 and. One is titled a prosperous Africa based on inclusive growth and sustainable development, that's aspiration one. And aspiration two is, is labeled an integrated continent, politically united and based on the ideals of pan-Africanism and the vision of African Renaissance. So the development of world-class infrastructure that connects and powers the continent is without a doubt necessary to achieve Agenda 2060 specifically aspirations one and two, which I, which I uh, mentioned. Investment and development of railways is crucial for connecting the continent and China's investment in Africa's critical infrastructure 
may nonetheless play a transformative role in supporting industrial strategies. Yunnan Chen, a London-based researcher at ODI and an expert of Chinese overseas railway building, explains. Railways can facilitate uh, more low-cost trade and thereby increase uh, increase not only exports overseas, but also internal uh, trade and commerce. Having railway investments as well as other transport investment can raise the attractiveness of uh, real estate around the site of the of the railway transport itself. And this can also attract further uh, investment in, in other kinds of retail and, and commercial purposes in the land surrounding the railway. So it can also stimulate um, urbanization and the formation of jobs in the service sectors. China is hugely important in the African railway sector. Uh, it's, it's a huge provider of railway technologies um, if, through the export of Chinese locomotives, um, bogies, carriages, uh, all kinds of equipment. But in the construction of railway lines um, and, and really constructing, constructing railway as an infrastructure, China has been the, the primary, the biggest player uh, within the continent um, and fairly unrivaled. These railway projects are not just for the benefit of African connectivity. They also provide benefits and avenues for Chinese industry and companies to engage throughout the continent. As Yunnan explains, these railways are not aid projects, but they are very, very commercially oriented. So whilst you know, many, many decades ago, um, these, these projects were, were, were not intended to really generate any kind of economic return. They were there because the countries demanded it. Now, these, uh, these new Chinese-built railways are financed through um, commercial lending. They are intended to, to generate returns, they are intended to facilitate trade, and they portend, um, within a wider backdrop, a much more long-term interest of Chinese companies and investors uh, across the continent. China's investment in critical infrastructure in Africa is also likely intended to transform the continent into an integrated, low-cost manufacturing platform, preparing the ground for African countries to play a role in relation to China, similar to the role China has played for the West, while China ascends to the top of global value chains. Dario Inkyombato, who works for the Canberra-based Australian Strategic Policy Institute, has mapped the presence of Chinese companies in the African Information Communication Technology, ICT, sector. She explains China's presence in the ICT sector in relation to this intended transformation and Beijing's dual circulation concept. What I like to say is that everything sort of connects back to dual circulation in, in some way. Um, but I might just sort of uh, go back to um, Made in China 2025 as a sort of key initiative um, that started prioritizing, uh, you know, the investment in strategic industries that were, you know, traditionally led by the United States, and this included um, information technology. So dual circulation is sort of a later iteration of, of this Made in China 2025 policy, um, and it is specifically aimed at boosting domestic demand um, 
as well as resolving you know issues of supply chain vulnerability and reducing dependence uh, china's dependence on international markets especially for critical technologies so the the key part of dual circulation is that you know the the prc or the chinese communist party would be attempting to make more and more countries dependent on on china and chinese companies um for their key technological infrastructure and you have you know you have countries in africa uh, several countries where huawei has, has provided vast majority of their 4g infrastructure and is sort of heading towards providing majority of 5, 5g infrastructure as well so that, that creates you know huge dependency on on the prc and prc companies and potentially huge vulnerabilities as well this notion of creating a viable economic subsystem separate from the US-led West through investment in critical infrastructure, such as ICTs and railways, also has diplomatic and security objectives. In the short term, I think this expansion really um, assists the Chinese party state in improving its international standing, um, its international image and sphere of influence, but also it helps it sort of overcome some of the obstacles that are posed by sanctions um, imposed by the United States or Europe, for example. So when, when Huawei you know, is uh, excluded from specific developed markets, uh, you see it sort of shift its efforts towards uh, more developing countries and you know this has definitely helped um, Chinese tech companies over overcome um, those those issues um, even though several issues still still remain um, but over the long term I think China's activities could create the tools needed to um, achieve a global alternative to the US-led technological ecosystem and this may end up challenging also what we have today as the rules-based order um, and sort of general standards of uh, of trade that we heavily rely on um, today. Delving deeper into the diplomatic and security domains, Beijing also considers Africa to play a crucial role in US-China competition. For prominent Chinese Africanists, the African continent hosts, quote, the largest number of countries that have the smoothest relationship with China. They also consider the continent's voting power in international institutions a potent asset for efforts to legitimize preferred concepts and initiatives on the global stage and to strengthen its position as a world leader. Additionally, Beijing hopes to count on the continued support of African countries whenever it is put under international pressure on contentious issues. In order to secure these votes and project influence throughout the continent, the party state employs united front work to shape narratives and perceptions abroad. Marika Olberg, senior fellow in the Indo-Pacific program at the German Marshall Fund in Berlin, an expert on the global implications of China's rise for various countries around the world, discusses united front work in Africa and its broader objectives. The goal of united front work in the broader sense, including political influence operations, is simply to make sure to create the impression and ideally the facts on the ground that as many countries as possible side with China um, or are seen as taking the PRC's side on various issues and to isolate the United States being able to, to, to paint the US as kind of a bit of a global rogue. You know, every country is on China's side. 
if you have a resolution at the UN level, for instance, criticizing China's human rights record, there will always be this counter resolution of countries signing on, praising China's human rights record on, on, on various issues. China's United Front work goals also vary by country. As Marika explains, in some countries, Beijing's influence work prioritizes protecting China's economic assets on the ground, making sure that Chinese companies are protected or get get good or preferential treatment. In some cases, you might have some political interests um, or in, in a few cases, also military interests. So, so one of the things of, of the goal simply is making sure that decisions that are made by political elites in various countries benefit the PRC. In the military and security realm, Nadej Rulon discusses how China is deepening its security ties with African countries, including with how local law enforcement actors and security appears as a domain of possible expanded engagement. The development of uh, security cooperation uh, with African countries has been something um, that's become more visible in recent years. Um, What's interesting about it is, there's, is that there is a lot going on at the public security level, police to police and law enforcement. Um, and in similar fashion as in other areas, you might not really think of it as something of a tsunami uh, or something very consequential. But if you add on all the multiplicity of uh, agreements and, and cooperations and training uh, that China is undertaking on the continent, you, you can see that there's a real effort going on in that domain. Chinese strategists recognize the importance of deepening China's security ties with African countries, not only as a means of influence, but also to enhance the protection of Chinese citizens and assets present on the continent. Also, in the context of the increased rivalry between China and the West, some Chinese strategists describe Africa as a possible exterior line that China could use to, quote, disturb or divert the attention of the United States and contain its Indo-Pacific strategy. In the discussions um, among strategists that we have studied for this project, there is a little footnote somewhere that says that the African continent may be used as an exterior line for China. And I was intrigued by this formulation because this is something that belongs to the realm of revolutionary warfare. It's, uh, it's an idea that Mao put uh, forward in the 30s when uh, the young Communist Party was fighting against um, very superior opponents, um, the Japanese Imperial Army and the Nationalists. Um, and basically his idea was that the, the Red Army was inferior in material power um, to these very powerful opponents and therefore couldn't really fight um, on the interior line, basically on the on the main battlefield, because they would this would have a devastating effect for for the Red Army. So instead, he advised that um, the Red Army would attack the enemy 
in multiple exterior lines. So basically the idea is to distract their attention uh, away from the main battlefield um, and in smaller pockets so that chances for the Red Army to win over uh, this superior enemy would be greater. And this is the same idea that was reflected in this particular paper where basically in that little footnote, very incidentally, uh, the author was saying, well, you know, the African continent could see, it could serve as an exterior line. Um, and I think what he meant there, and this is my own interpretation, but I think it was quite obvious what he meant, um, was that the principal enemy today is the United States and the principal battlefield is the Indo-Pacific. And so if um, China could distract the attention of the US away from the Indo-Pacific, uh, Africa could be a, a good place to, to do just that. I'm not sure how much this would involve, and the author didn't really um, delve into detail about anything specific. Um, the author was not a military scholar. He doesn't belong to any uh, PLA think tank. But so it made me wonder if in other corners of, uh, of Beijing um, strategic thinking, there, there are discussions about how to actually use the continent as a, as a real exterior line for military and strategic purposes. The final key element to China's emerging strategy is an emphasis on the ideological struggle that opposes China to the West and the desire to tell China's story. Based on the observation that the ideological contest centered on values may become an important aspect of the competition between the United States and China in Africa in the coming period, Chinese experts strongly recommend that China disseminate its experience, or what is sometimes called the China solution, as a source of inspiration from which African countries should draw. Nadej explains that. The way that they're thinking of how to disseminate uh, this model is really through training sessions and um, the development and increase of uh, so-called people-to-people exchanges, which, which are not really people-to-people -people because it's not individuals, you know, individual tourists or any, anything like that. It's an organized form of transfer of skills and transfer of um, sets of beliefs, I think, uh, rather than an organic uh, growing of um, exchanges between African people from various countries and, and Chinese citizens. This is evident in journalism trainings and scholarships throughout the continent, including in Mauritius, where Rukaya Kasanali is a professor and director of the African Media Initiative at the University of Mauritius. There is a centralized training institute in Mauritius called the Media Trust, and there has and and the Media Trust uh, signs a number of uh, MOUs with different uh, countries because I mentioned the multilingual uh, setup in Mauritius, English, French, uh, and also we have a number of Oriental language. So there was an there was a move towards. Uh, 
uh, a signing of an MOU between the Media Trust and the All China Journalism uh, Journalists, sorry, Association, the ACGA, uh, that uh, uh, to actually uh, develop a number of training programs and so on and so forth. You know, when I interviewed them in 2022, they were still uh, finalizing uh, the the MOU because there was, uh, you know, a, a request by by the AGA to actually sign the memorandum of understanding in Mandarin, and the media trust was resisting that because Mandarin is not the language that they use for MOUs. So. It seems that the, the MOU is, is yet to be signed, but there has been a number of journalists that have gone on, I think, for the Belt and Road uh, Journalism Journalist Summit in 2019. We had a number of uh, journalists who were nominated uh, by the media trust and by also by the public broadcaster, the, uh, the Mauritius Broadcasting Corporation to as attend the summit. We've had a number of journalists who have been trained or who have received scholarships, sorry, uh, at master's level to, to be in China. So I think there are, there is a number of journalists, uh, not large numbers, it's still very small, but it is growing over time, and there is obviously uh, a, 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 a supply of, uh, of of scholarships, which you know is going to be taken. Uh, it, which a number of journalists said they are ready to take up. So I think there is obviously this push, uh, and what's interesting is that Mauritius is um, signatory to the Belt and Road Initiative, but it is not signatory to the Belt and Road News Network. So they have not signed for the BRNN. Beijing's story is also commonly shared through its influence operations and united front work, which we've heard a bit about already from Marika Olberg. She further breaks down the main actors and targets here. Who those actors are, um, maybe I'll divide that into two. One is united front work in, in the narrower sense, um, in the sense of the work that is coordinated by the United Front Work Department, which is an important department of the CCP, that is essentially um, about um, building the building coalitions and allying as many groups and people as possible um, with the party and against making sure that the PRC's or the CCP's enemies are, are isolated. This work is done both inside the PRC and that is where the, the main bulk of the work still is, but also outside the PRC. And the main target of, of United Front Work in the narrow sense um, are Chinese diaspora. So both um, that includes from the CCP's perspective, both people that have a PRC passport and are living temporarily in African countries um, and people that um, whose ancestors emigrated long uh, longer ago that no longer have a PRC passport, but have Chinese heritage, Chinese ethnicity, and that therefore are considered, you know, part of the this group of people that that is a target of United Front work in the narrower sense. And and that is there's a huge bureaucracy of organizations inside of China that coordinate this. And then on the ground um, in African countries, what you have is various organizations um, that are essentially the goal is to make sure that the diaspora community remains tied to the CCP, to the embassy on the ground, and that there's a way for the embassy to basically get in touch, um, stay, get information on people, who is here, what are they doing, 
and, and also to be able to mobilize people if they want to for, for certain political tasks, whether that is, you know, joint statements, condemning XYZ behavior, something the United States did, or something that other perceived enemies of the PRC did, or whether it is, you know, for defending China's own national interests. So there's various types of organizations on, on the ground. The most common ones are just simply associations of overseas Chinese. You have them in pretty much, in pretty much almost every country. Um, you have a set of organizations that is under the Council for the Promotion of Peaceful Unification of China. Um, it's technically it's dedicated to anything that has to do with with Taiwan and you know um, that that political um, issue. But it can also those organizations can also serve as broader community organization organizations. And then you have business councils, and and those are the three basic types. And then you have a bunch of other subtypes. But the point is, there's a huge number of organizations on the ground simply to make sure that you have access to as many people within the diaspora as possible and can mobilize them. So that's United Front work in the narrower sense. In the broader sense, um, it would include political influence and interference work targeted, um, not just at overseas Chinese, but primarily at, um, at African elites. A lot of it is targeted at elites, actually, but technically also at, at the broader public at large. Um, and there's a whole bureaucracy in the PRC also for managing and liaising with foreigners um, and on, on the ground. Um, so this would include the foreign affairs system with the embassies on the ground that do take an active role in all of this. Um, but it also includes a number of other party institutions or supposed um, civil society organizations that aren't actually civil society organizations that are party controlled. Um, but two important ones that um, that one one would mention here would be one the international liaison department of the CCP that is mainly responsible for party to party diplomacy. So alongside government to government diplomacy, you also have a track where you have party to party diplomacy where the PRC reaches out to various political parties, not just on the African continent, but but in in any country, but including on the African continent. These efforts point to the notion that China is indeed trying to export its model, although not necessarily in the traditional way people have in mind. This idea and finding, as Nadej Holland explains, is one of the more striking conclusions of the project. This is the most um, novel idea because obviously China has been reluctant and um, to admit that this is what they're trying to do and um, would be very upset if they heard me saying this. Um, um, they've, they deny that China is exporting its model um, and even among you know, China experts and observers, this is a, a very contentious uh, topic, obviously, um, for good reasons. Um, I think it's, it's because the shape and form it's taking is very different to what we have in mind when we're thinking about exporting a model. And here it's more bits and pieces and elements of it. But there's a, there's a concerted um, effort in the, de the development of those training sessions, you know, that 
um, China is offering um, to journalists, for example, um, it, or Oregon to um, local security forces um, that that are meant to um, to disseminate the way China is doing things, and then it's not forcing uh, those students in court in court to um, to apply it's by back home i mean there's no way they can enforce that um but it's a it's a form of soft influence that other countries have used in the past and that it seems like china is um eager to also develop now beijing has developed a comprehensive strategy for the african continent you can clearly see how china has laid the foundation for african countries to become even further enmeshed with the prc Kaya Casanelli lays out China's efforts across domains to simply summarizing Beijing's cross-sector and cross-domain approach. At the University of Mauritius, we have a Huawei Academy, which uh, you know provides uh, capacity building, certification, training in artificial intelligence and other new technology take up. So I think it's using all the various sort of tools uh, uh, you know in its in, 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 in that is available to it to sort of really put china out there has this favorite favored and you know and very sort of um you know uh uh influential and also extremely persuasive partners so i think the china brand is very strong and especially in certain countries in, uh, like mauritius we see the dwindling presence of you know, to a certain extent, especially when we're talking about capacity building and training and media training of our traditional partners like uh, the UK, like uh, uh, Germany, like uh, the, the US uh, and even France. And this sort of vacuum that is being left is being quickly taken up by China. So I think, you know, uh, it's a very, very opportunistic sort of uh, approach by China. It's about marketing, it's about, you know, uh, branding, it's about, uh, uh, you know, uh, networking, and it's about understanding how they use a very astutely soft power, which sometimes borders on sharp power to make China the relevant and the most attractive partner in, in, in this whole, uh, you know, whether it's a trade policy, war, war policy, or winning the, the, the hearts and minds of people. So I think it's very astute, it's very strategic. Although there are strategic motivations behind China's activities on the continent, Bandera Bagwandin highlights that African countries can leverage their increasing presence on the global stage to their own advantage. As an African and as African kind of international relations scholar and researcher, it's, it's, it's quite uh, interesting to observe how in the last you know, two years or so, everyone, like from the US, Europe, India, Turkey, Russia, they're all <laughs> coming to Africa again. You know, they're all coming to us again um, because they need us in, in the you know, wider geopolitical and uh, games that are being played. They, you know, we pack quite a clout when it comes to voting on international platforms. And so we're having 
all these uh, you know promises being made for infrastructure development and helping with our economic transformation and i think you know china's been doing this for a while well before so i think now the eu and us are you know starting to realize and looking at the kind of political capital china has built up in africa i think they're starting to realize that they do need to engage more with the continent and maybe taking a page out of china's book and saying you know we actually should also start financing and helping out with infrastructure development Nadir Salon also emphasizes this idea while discussing how Western countries have been reactive rather than proactive when it comes to China's engagement with African countries. Instead of being overly reactive, because I think more and more people are getting um, aware that China's um, efforts toward the global south um, are, are growing. Um, I mean, the Belt and Road was is is ten years old this year, so it would it would be logical to realize that this is not um, a fluke and uh, that it's going to disappear. Um, so more and more are, are aware of these increased efforts of from China's side to develop its its influence and presence in countries uh, of the global south and including Africa. But at the same time, then when this awareness is growing, most of Western countries tend to be very reactive and look at things um, that China is doing from a very parochial perspective and maybe want to react. So um, something about infrastructure building, we should do the same, we should have an alternative, which is in general, not necessarily a bad thing. And actually, African countries might benefit from this increased competition because then proposed or offered um, a series of options, then they can choose for themselves which one is the best instead of having just one in front of them. Um, and so they can actually be uh, using their own agency to decide what proposal is is the best for them yet she also highlights that the reactive nature of western responses to chinese activities on the continent is ultimately harmful the reactive part from western powers has um ha can have a negative impact because um if you're constantly on the reaction you don't take a step uh, take a step back and look at the the broader strategic picture, and you might disperse um, and waste some resources and some energy that will distract you uh, from looking at the at the broad picture and what is what really matters for your own interests. And in that sense, I think this specifically this American obsession with uh, Chinese potential base building, naval base building uh, on the African continent sort of overwhelms the, the rest of the possibilities that the possibilities of action that China is taking over the continent in, on the continent. 
Um, and so this hyper-focus on the military basing um, obfuscates the rest of engagements that China is taking with African countries that, to me, are going to be very consequential for the future of, of Africa. It is also important to acknowledge that much of China's strategic relations with Africa and their impacts and influence still need to be studied. For instance, Marika Olberg highlights that the data on the success of Chinese influence operations is lacking. I think we need more information on how successful the PRC actually is in winning over general publics with with the narratives um, it wants to promote on the continent. And I think the, this is where um, we, we have some data, um, but it's still not detailed enough. And I think if we had the data, we'd probably get an incredibly varied picture um, that would vary by country. In some countries, um, public opinion we know is fairly favorable towards the PRC and other countries is incredibly unfavorable due to, you know, maybe local labor issues um, that have arisen um, with, um, with China's engagement on the continent or various other factors. Um, and we would probably also see success, different kinds of success based on the topic that you talk about. Um, and certain narratives would probably be more well received than others. This is a topic that will need to be continually studied as discussions among Chinese strategists will continue to evolve and the studies and actions of the party state will continue to transform and progress as the strategic environment shifts. As Nadezh concludes, this project and the assessments and thinking of Chinese academics and strategists is extremely interesting, but also has its limits. These are intellectual discussions and we don't know what the decision makers are going to make out of the work that these scholars have done for five years. Um, the only thing that we as external observers can try to do is put side by side the recommendations and the ideas that those intellectuals have put on the paper that we examine uh, throughout the, the project and the reality happening on the ground. From what we could tell, um, some of those propositions um, have already taken root in the way that Beijing has um, has have already taken root in uh, some of the propositions that Beijing put forward during the latest uh, uh, FOCAC, the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation. So we need to continue to monitor whether we can find a, an alignment uh, with actual foreign policy decisions and actual um, actions taken by the Chinese government with relation to the set of suggestions and recommendations that these scholars have made. For a deeper understanding of the ins and outs of China's emerging strategy, I strongly recommend that you download the full reports at www.mbr.org. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of Asia Insight.
Asia Insight Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thank you for listening to this episode of Asia Insight.